Tonight I'll continue with the Brahma Viharas. Left off, I think somewhere with Murita. And I think I mentioned the near and far enemies, the near enemy being um, joy with a with a hook or a tug, like just some greed there, maybe wanting some of what the the person experiencing the joy, uh, some of what they have. So it's not purely that unconditional, unfettered, childlike, innocent, uh, joyous nature, joyous being. And the far enemy being, it's a form of aversion in the form of envy and jealousy. And I might have left off there saying that that is connected to an underlying sense of unworthiness, feelings of shame, that when we're, when we're stuck with that, when we're unaware and haven't been able to step aside and work with wisdom or the other Brahma Viharas on those feelings of uh, unworthiness, shame, and, and are identified with it, then they can manifest aversively as um, envy, jealousy, to be like losing touch with our goodness within, then wherever we might see it, we project out and either you know, idealize uh, and never let go of that idealization or, you know, want to have what we perceive as um, as joy, as delight, goodness outside of ourselves. So what we can understand then how that becomes envy and jealousy. Sometimes it's unconscious, not so not so big in the mind. Sometimes it just leads to a, a, a lot more mental proliferation and just cultivate a mind that tends toward that, kind of always looking for our goodness outside of ourselves. And then, and then feeling bereft when we see it and identify, identify it as being outside of ourselves and someone else having it, how do we get it? It's a painful, it's a painful place to live, painful place uh, to be, uh, and that's
Can you hear me back there? Yes. yes. Thanks, Jesse. Um, I remember the first time I started to deeply connect with my own sense of of worthiness, cut through a lot of the shame I had inherited or ingested or didn't even know I had growing up. And it was at a retreat with Upandita. I was, was doing the Brahma Viharas then uh, for some months and working with the Mudita at this point and feeling, feeling its effects. So doing it the way that we've been teaching it, sometimes using the phrases and a visualization to, to get it in motion. And when it felt that there was some traction and movement, then uh, Upanita instructed me to let go, just drop the phrases and drop the, the, the object of the mudita, the visualization. And then that's, that would be the original way the Buddha taught, just abiding, resting, completely relaxing into that field of goodness, in this case, the goodness of mudita, you know, those waves, impulses, movement of joy in the heart, in the body, in the mind, kind of filling up, welling up, kind of continuously. And then dropping real deeply into that. As I said, these Brahmaviharas, at some point, they they really feel like this is home. These qualities, this is the home of the heart. This is where, where the heart really wants to live. It's not about anything outside of ourselves. Not about a, a different external condition or country or, you know, it's about here. It's about right here. And then feeling, f- feeling the empowerment that comes when we feel our goodness, our worthiness, when, when shame starts to dissipate. And we take a breath and it, we feel like it, it's, our, it's our own, our own breath, our own body, our own feelings, and our own mind stream. And I was taken deeply by it. it was, something really shifted and moved inside. Um, this was also when I was weaving in, in and out of the, from the Brahma Viharas to Vipassana and then back to the Brahma Viharas uh, in, in the way that Upadita saw fit that would work for me. So, you know, with that, that deep sense of, of goodness and worthiness, I think I'd switch to the Vipassana. And, and there was just a major, a major shift, a major, um, you know, opening. And I, just, I never felt so, so still and, and different than my sense of self previously. So I went the next morning to see Saido. Uh, 
and I didn't, I had no words. Uh, I just had tears. And the Sayadaw was just watching me, quiet and patient. Kind of, I felt like he was getting a read, a read on my system. And there, at some point, he said, there's two types of tears. One type caused from environment, like onions, garlic. <laughs> you know, in his total directness and honesty, it was also completely hilarious. Because it was a serious moment for me, you know. <laughs> the second, the second kind is um, tears comes from joy. And he said there are two kinds of joy that tears come from. One is attached joy. Maybe it's when your child, <clears throat> you know, wins an award at school or accomplishes something. And you, you're you're watching her or him in, in that process, or when they come home and are you know happy to show it off, and it just touches the heart in such a way that you have you know tears, tears of joy. But if we look closely, it, there may be some hook, some attachment, because you know it's our child, our daughter, her son, um, and the other. The other kind of tears from joy is joy without attachment. That would be a non-sensual joy. That would be the kind of joy and happiness that we're cultivating here that's not dependent on something external. So even when we visualize someone um, who's currently happy and we or using that visualization and, and the phrase, may you continue to enjoy happiness. Um, we're borrowing, you know, they're tools of awakening. We're borrowing, borrowing the image of that particular dear person and using the, the phrase ideally to drop in to the joy emotion, that steep joy emotion. And then when we do, uh, the idea would be to let go then, holding on to a visualization or, or the phrase, and completely bask, completely rest, abide in that, in that joy. It's our joy, it's deep joy, deep heart joy. And the way that it grows is the connection with it by, by totally feeling it, totally being that joy. And it has nothing to do with this any anything in the environment sense pleasures or something happening outside of ourselves someone else being happy or not happy we can feel this joy in any circumstance at, at any time and this is why we cultivate all four brahma viharas so we can access this this joy on a regular basis uh, to influence our our life influence everything we do, and ideally, there's spillover that influences other people as well.
by knowing that kind of joy, it, it tends to sever the habit, if we have it, uh, of orienting out of envy and jealousy. We start to sever the roots of that because we've never had it before, we've never had the joy before. So where we might perceive it exists out there in in the world somewhere, someplace, in some other person, uh, will always estrange us, will always keep us at distance from it. But as we touch on it and abide in it within, then there's no more nurture. There's no more nurture for envy and jealousy. And they just start to, to wilt, you know, like weeds. It's helpful to recognize because sometimes we, we feel maybe we're not even sure what it is, but we feel just some negative energy from someone. And we, we don't really know what it is. We look at our behavior, anything we might have said, anything we might have done, and, and it might feel clear to us. It might be clear that we haven't said or done anything that might be upsetting to that person and why they may have those feelings. Uh, but nevertheless, it feels like kind of a, almost like a poisonous energy. And to, just to ask, you know, oneself, just, well, could they be envious or jealous because we're happy, because we're connected, you know, because we feel fulfilled or whatever it might be. Because then that would help us understand what might be happening. And understanding is always another doorway to connection. And if we understand how they might be feeling, then we don't reserve the Brahma Viharas just for people we think deserve it. We realize that, that the, they're not people who deserve it and people who don't deserve it. We realize that we're cultivating this heart for everyone, for every living being, no matter what their station, what, what their behavior is, and ideally even if their behavior feels negative to us. So, you know, even friends sometimes might be jealous, so we love our friends. And so all, all the more reason to you know, make them feel seen and recognized and understood by our our thoughts and actions of metta, our compassion and joy and so forth. It just may undermine the roots of their envy and jealousy and just let them get a, potentially get a glimpse of their, their own joy. We can't make it happen, but we increase the possibility by just not turning away and by being stable ourselves. When it doesn't, when it did, they don't work, the metta, or the compassion, or the mudita, we have equanimity that still keeps us present. And if nothing, that people are affected by that because perhaps they've rarely been around such stability, such a depth of unconditional peace, unconditional acceptance. They, they feel like no matter how much envy or jealousy or aversion they might have toward us, that it's not hurting us, you know, it's not getting, gaining them anything. And they feel the non-reactivity. 
And people are affected by that. You know, we, we become a, a, a beacon for them, a beacon of that peacefulness, of that non-reactivity. I mentioned I'd talk to you about Kalyanamitta, which is the Pali, Buddhist Pali term for spiritual friend, Mita being a, for metta, uh, spiritual, spiritual friend, um, would be someone, anyone, whose presence make us feel seen. Their, their very presence, their very way of being around us make us feel valued. In other words, it immediately connects us with our own worthiness. Uh, it's a, like a mirror to our goodness. And such a person might be the person sitting next to you, you know, in this way we're all spiritual friends here, together. Uh, even Upandita, would refer to himself, you know, not as a guru or someone that you you need to, you know, even bow to. He never uh, insisted of it. It was uncomfortable for anyone to put their hands together, even in Anjali, fingers together, hands together, let alone bowing. He considered himself a, a spiritual friend, and that was trained by his teacher all the way back to the Buddha in, in these Dhamma gifts that we all have the potential to, to do. Uh, and I, I went to Burma after already practicing for nine years um, in, in, uh, in America, in Australia, and Hawaii with Upandita, uh, other teachers before Upandita. So, I wasn't, when I went to Burma, I wasn't looking for a teacher. I was wanting to continue with the, the system, the, the Mahasi system. Mahasi Sayadaw was Upandita's teacher and considered a, a, a receiver of the lineage and a modern founder of the style today. The, he's the one who opened the, the monastery doors up to shorter, retreats that lay people could do, householders like us could do, um, that would fit in to one's life, didn't have to ordain and didn't have to stay for months at a time. Uh, and he, he, he took Upandita under his wing, Upandita then became the abbot when Mahasi passed away. So when I met, when I met Upandita, I just thought I was just meeting one of the teachers. Uh, and, but the immediate meeting was a, like a recognition. You know, I felt this compelling attraction, connection, familiarity. The term in Burma, Yezed uh, Sonde, it's just an idiom. But I even think the, the idiom is lovely. The idiom is... Uh, water drop connection or confluence of two streams. It's like when two water drops come together and become one or two streams merge as one. 
And the idea is that um, the two people who feel that similar connection between each other, uh, and he also felt the same toward me, in the past, sometime in the past, together acted with good intentions, and com- such as compassion, loving kindness, uh, in, in service or in help of others, helping people or animals, you know, help, helping in some way. And the, the result of doing that good together is that you meet again, like two water drops, like two streams merging into one. That was clearly a significant moment, nearly a decade of, of already practicing, not expecting ever to have you know, a teacher, teacher, uh, just other spiritual friends. But now I kind of found a, a major spiritual friend uh, and, and totally appreciated the 35 years or so. Um, that he, he remained alive and all that I all that I gained and sometimes I felt like his experiment <laughs> because I was so malleable and willing to do whatever because he saw I had energy and would and stay up a lot and 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 try things I shouldn't have tried, you know, like not lying down. This other teacher, Michelle and I New from Burma, late Tangpulu Saida, came to IMS. He had spent 33 years in a cave, not lying down. You know, he'd sleep sitting up. And so, you know, when you're young and imaginative and trying to be the good yogi and all that, so I would do these things and I'd tell him, and he'd just say, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> He, he didn't admonish me, you know. But then I realized later that he was using me in a way, <laughs> giving me all these, you know, various kinds of ways of practicing, thoroughly understanding the four foundations of mindfulness and the Eightfold Path and the factors of awakening and so forth, which we'll be doing in a few days when the Brahma Viharas uh, are over, and even with the Brahma Viharas, just ways of going re- really deep with them, playing with them, as you call, as we call it, and and then interweaving them with the Vipassana practice to value a Kalyanamita, whether it's our the support we have on either side of us, fellow spiritual friends, or if we're if we do find teacher or teachers in our lives. Um, If we get that mirroring, if we feel recognized, seen, acknowledged, and and it does connect us with a profound sense of our own value, our own worthy nature, there's nothing more powerful than that. Then we are, you know, really motivated to cultivate, cultivate these practices, where all these practices come under the term of meditation, the Pali term being bhavana, 
which means cultivation, development. We are cultivating just like we would a garden. Uh, so the soil is healthy and plant the seeds. And then it's, it's just the magic of conditions when that seed will sprout, when it will burst through the earth and when or if it blooms you know, into flowers. So we, once we feel, start to feel rooted and connected, the faith or confidence increases a lot that this is a good thing and there, there is, and flowering, flowerings of different levels are gonna happen, begin to happen do happen. As we, we've mentioned, no matter how strong or, or pure, um, powerful the loving-kindness practices and the caring of, of karuna, compassion, and the cultivation of this joyousness based on our deep sense of worthiness, goodness, uh, this non-sensual, limitless joy, as limitless as the compassion, as limitless as the loving kindness, boundless, immeasurable. It doesn't mean that we can change everyone. If they're not open to it, you know, if we're just radiating these Brahma Viharas, you know, and, and other people are clearly being, feeling an affect from that. So some people aren't able to do that. This, their, their minds are conditioned differently. It might be attachment to a particular view they have, or ideas, or different tradition, or it might be their unskillful habits of mind. They're judging or you know, angry or attached and so forth. We can't control that. We can't control how other people are acting. And, and that's why the Brahma Vihara of Upeka or equanimity is so priceless. It's priceless within the nature of these four spiritual emotions themselves because it's what balances and develops the metta, the karuna, and the mudita, and brings them to fruition. Uh, but then it's also a way of manifesting, a way of being, when we've come to the, even with limitless, immeasurable loving kindness and compassion, joy, and we can't change maybe someone we love dearly, or a situation where people are, in a lot of pain or trouble or starving, you know, we, we, we don't then give up and lose faith. We have this Brahma Vihara to lean back, rest, and restore ourselves of, of mental, emotional equipoise, the emotion of equanimity or equipoise. Very refined, very refined, quality, level of being that is accepting at that time the limits and capabilities that exist before us. So an example I'm using 
the person or persons we might be trying to affect change, we see that our metta doesn't grab hold in that person at that time, or the compassion or the joy. And so there ha what else do we do? You know, instead of turning away, we can still be there. And as I said a little earlier, there may be something about just being there, unaffected, because the far enemy is being affected, it's reactivity, attachment or aversion for the situation, attachment to wanting to change them or aversion that they're unable to change. But instead, we're just present. And we're not disconnected. True equanimity is very connected. Care is right there. Uh, kindness is right there. Joy is right there. They're all right there, but equanimity is just taking, is the lead singer, if you will, in, in the, in the connected band. And, and that's right now, that's all that people are hearing, you know, is the music and the voice of Queen Upeka. <laughs> so we just have that powerful presence that, that may or may not have an, an affect, but most likely the person's going to see that whatever they are, whatever they're doing, however they're behaving, isn't having a, ne a negative effect. We're not turning away. We're not saying, not being judgmental. Our continence remains the same. So, so whether it's conditions that affect us or come to our, our own dukkha, you know, our own uh, illness or heartbreak or uh, uh, difficult circumstances that we meet or whether it's others. That upeka is uh, a, prof a profound breath of relief when nothing else seems to be happening or working. Just carefully lean back with things as they are. The, the Pali, the Buddhist Pali terminology, kamasaka, is, is a word that um, kama is the Pali term for karma, Sanskrit word karma. So it means the inheritor of actions. So when we say kamasaka, we're talking about you know who who we are at this very moment, or who someone else is at this very moment. It is they are the, the heir of all their intentions, uh, present and past, and that's it's a healthy way to understand what karma is. Um, intention. The Buddha said, uh, Chaitana and Kama were the same. Chaitana is the word for volition, our intention. Kama, karma, our action. Action and intention are the same. They have an immediate impact. So intentional thought has an impact. Thoughts backed by will. It, does, it has an impact uh, either on the very next thought or some thoughts down the road or a whole thinking patterning that we begin to live. If we have those particular intentional thoughts a lot, 
then we're creating a, a thinking pattern that, that we live through. To understand that in ourselves helps us understand that in others. Intentional speech, again, the force of will behind a word or series of words, spoken or written. And that has, that has an impact. That makes us feel good or bad, or makes others feel good or bad. And intentional actions of the body, same. Depending on the quality of the intention, it has an impact because of the, the force of will, the equivalent of choice in Western psychology. There's no, there's no one having the intention. Intention is a quality like feeling tone that arises in every moment of experience, which we'll speak up to a lot in the coming Vipassana retreat. But intention has to be there for thinking to happen every moment, or for speaking to happen, or movement. Intention is there for every heartbeat, in a way. Uh, we don't need to develop the kind of awareness that is there for that quick and intention. It's helpful to think of intentions as being influenced. Very simply put, can be influenced by greed, hatred, delusion. So whatever is up, if thoughts you know, of attachment or wanting are strong, that's going to influence the intention to think, well, I want that, or to say, I want that, or to enact with our physical bodies to take what we want. Uh, if the intention is influenced by aversion, the same thing. Negative thoughts, words that push away or, or insult and actions that do the same. If our thoughts are influenced by delusion, then there'll be a confusion, lack of clarity in our speech, in our thoughts, and in our actions. They'll be acting out of unknowing, which often is just the cover, the cloud, for unskillful attachment and aversive thoughts and speech. Whereas if intention in the moment, if the quality, a quality of generosity, or loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity are there. If that's what's up, then the influence, the, the influence that has on intention is for thoughts, beautiful thoughts, motivated out of metta, thoughts that are born, virtually born out of loving kindness, care, joyfulness, and balance of mind, equanimity. Thoughts, speech, action, all of that. So why we cultivate the Brahma Viharas is because they have an enormous impact on the simple little quality that we usually think of as choice and identify with. Well, I choose this or I choose that. Well, not really. Choice is really intention and intention is influence by skillful or unskillful mind qualities. Greed, hatred, delusion, generosity, kindness, clarity. So it's meaningful that inside and outside of retreat, we continuously have these avenues available to us. We can always be mindful, of course. We, we need the uh, awareness and wisdom that discerns 
what is skillful and unskillful, many people don't even know the difference. So we want to apply that first, just learning what are skillful qualities of heart and unskillful qualities of heart, what brings happiness and what brings dukkha, forms of suffering. Once we know that, then we have more motivation and more faith or confidence to cultivate it, uh, the skillful qualities. And nothing better to start with than these spiritual emotions, the most powerful emotions in our heart. I, I think all emotions eventuate in, in these four. Um, I think I mentioned the near enemy as being cut off or disengaged, dissociated, disconnected from ourselves or others' experience, um, or going numb, numbing out, which is, we all know, we've all used that as a survival strategy. You know, when it's too overwhelming, then we don't want to feel, so we just stop feeling. And that's a, like a protective crust over the heart, armor, like Iron Man suit, you know, immediately goes up and protects us from any kind of intrusion whatsoever, good or bad. So, but as we, as we develop our awareness more, we see that, well, maybe there's better boundaries and as we've been talking about, the Brahma Viharas are the most skillful boundaries to have. They're fluid and, and, and porous. They let in the good and they can keep out or keep at bay the unskillful. Um, so that hardness or numbness, we can start to set aside and, and learn to use instead either equanimity or a real strong compassion, more forceful compassion, no, we can't do that, that's not okay, please stay away, or that's not useful to do, or inappropriate to, do, to say or behave, and don't, you know, don't do that. We act. We act to protect ourselves with the skillful means, and, and keep out what we don't want to intrude, be intruded upon in the heart. And then the, the far enemy, again, the reactive mind, that if we think about it, without a practice like this, there's probably enough delusion in all of us that we would mostly be cultivating reactive mind. That is, going after what we like or want, avoiding, pushing away, denying, repressing what we don't like and don't want. Again, to, to have that discerning wisdom that knows what's skillful and what's unskillful. Reactive mind is, in this case, means the unskillful qualities are training the mind to grasp or push away. That's the opposite. That's why it's called the far, the far enemy of equanimity. Whereas with equanimity, we, have, we make available the discerning wisdom so along with, say, compassion, we know what we can, we know what our capability, capabilities and limitations are, what we can or can't do in regard to ourselves or another 
situation, another person or group of people. Uh, so sometimes the skillful thing is doing nothing. You know, sometimes just a kind word. You know, or saying I'm available if you need me, if someone's hurt or if you want to talk, you know. Just attuned to see what's appropriate. And sometimes we know that nothing we say or do might be helpful and just, just reside non-reactively in, in the moment, in the present. The what's called the eight worldly conditions is what equanimity is most helpful in navigating around. And those eight worldly conditions are um, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, uh, honor and dishonor, um, gain and loss. All beings experience that, including Buddhas, awakened ones. All beings experience pleasure, pain, um, gain and loss, honor, dishonor, and, and um, what was the other one? Praise and blame. It's just the way of the world. That, that's what it means. Loka dhamma. Loka being world. Dhamma here meaning nature. It's worldly nature. Way of the world. We meet that every day. We meet that every sitting. We meet it, if we look carefully, every moment. Oh, this is a good sitting. This is a good moment. I like that moment. You know, that's a gain. That's oh, I'm doing good. That's praise. You know, this feels good. That's pleasure. So we're always having these eight worldly conditions affect us, and it's the equanimity that keeps us, you know, navigating around them. So there's not attachment because we all want praise and we all want pleasure, and we all want honor and we all want gain, and we don't want their opposites. You know, and if we don't know better, that's we'll, we'll cultivate the qualities of mind that chase one and avoid the other. And that's an uncomfortable mind. That's a busy mind. But I'd like to, lastly, talk a little bit to help us understand these Brahma-viharas, and especially the last one I'm talking about, because Kamasaka understanding that we're, um, we're all the heirs of intention, of action. And so that skillful actions clearly lead to a skillful mind state in that moment, contribute to a, a, a fluid, healthy, buoyant personality. Uh, it also has the capacity of this magnetic attraction to more of the same a few moments down the line, or a few months or years down the line. Uh, so to understand, you know, and to understand that and to know that, we cultivate, we cultivate what's skillful, and we try to avoid, recognize what's what's unskillful. So kamasaka, when if we were to attach to it an understanding, a sentence of understanding, it would be. All, be, all beings meet their joys and sorrows, or pleasure and pain, you know, the eight worldly conditions, according to 
their intentions. Right? Intention and action are the same, and they produce a, a, what's called vipaka, fruit, result. We cultivate the ground right, we put the seed in, uh, we'd be, be sure it's a rainy time or add water, and the nutrients add earth, and the sun adds heat. Those, those are the conditions for the seed to first even be warm enough and nurtured enough to sprout and make their way to the surface, break the surface. And if the conditions are still there, to continue growing, eventually, possibly, to, to bloom. So, all beings meet their joys and sorrows, their happiness and unhappiness, according to their actions, their chaitana. That understanding that includes ourselves, includes ourselves, all beings including ourselves, every moment, every moment we're experiencing of vipaka, we're experiencing fruits from past chaitana, past intentions. So past healthy intentions, skillful intentions, are why we might have a really good sensation or beautiful metta sitting or even a few moments of metta, abiding in the metta or the compassion or the joy. And likewise, the, the pain we experience are just fruits. Fruits kind of coming to their fruition, flower blooming. Um, it's helpful to know that the more we cultivate these healthy qualities, these healthy uh, chaitanas of the Brahma Viharas, for example, and in the Vipassana awareness and wisdom, they have the they have the power to 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 mitigate or to take away the nurture of past unhealthy intentions, actions to bear fruit. So we experience more joy, you know, more pleasant likely experience more of the skillful states and, and less of the potential unskillful states. That's the power of these Brahma-viharas and power of wisdom and awareness. Increases healthy mind states and, and healthy intentions, skillful intentions, and decreases the potential of the fruits of past unhealthy actions, intentions, thoughts, speech, and so forth. Uh, and even kind of side by side, because we still are kind of stuck doing both. But the more we practice, the more we fall in love with and, and immerse ourselves in the Brahma Viharas and awareness and wisdom practice, we just, we just see them taking over, you know, gaining traction, and our unhealthy habits losing traction, being more distant, and our, and our ability to step back more. And we can just assess the situation and make a resolve. May I think more clearly? May I speak more skillfully? May I act more skillfully from now into the future, you know, when we do make mistakes? That kind of honest self-assessment is critical, is crucial. 
It's a beautiful thing. Upandita loved honesty. So he'd love it when someone came in and report, well, for the last two days, I've just had lust, anger, confusion, envy, and jealousy. That's all I've had. And he'd, he'd, he'd smile, at least, if not laugh. <laughs> you know? He just would like the honesty. He'd like the purity of someone just saying what's really happening, what's true. We all love truth. And, and, and we deal better with the truth. You know, uh, in our relationship with, with all of you, you know, we work better when we know, actually know what's happening. Not even what you think is happening, but when you are able to articulate kind of what is happening. Or if you don't know, you don't know. That's honest too. That's true too. And then just in, in most friendships, you, you see how, you know, in terms of, of saying what's true, the Buddha also cautioned us against uh, not only saying what's true, but only if and when it's timely and if it's appropriate and useful. So sometimes that's why this the equanimous saying nothing, not saying anything, or, you know, saying something good, just calling up a metta-based thought process is more skillful than saying what it is that's really kind of on your mind. If it doesn't feel like it's going to be received or appropriate at the right time, right place. When I, when I was first in the monastery, for a while, it was a period of time I was alone because I had just gotten the visa in and everyone left. And um, Upandita invited me after the meal into uh, this room with senior monks for dessert, little treats, and around, sit around a silent table, a table where everyone's silent, and just mindfully eating and offering who's next to you tea if they wanted, needed tea, or food and so forth. But no one saying a thing. Uh, it was very intimidating for me. It was like a room of giants. You know, I read recently that someplace on Vancouver Island in the southern part discovered the, the second largest Douglas fir. I think in the world, and and I thought, well, what's the first one? <laughs> so I looked it up, and the first one is also only twenty kilometers east of the first one. <laughs> and they're giants; they're massive, hundreds of feet tall, and their girth is really massive, and they're all at least eight hundred thousand years old. That's where I felt I was. I was sitting in this room, and Upandita at the time, he just died a couple years ago at 95. He was 60 at the time, or 59. He was the youngest, and the oldest was over a century. And so that that's, was very intimidating for me, and I had a hard time 
even though it was in silence, you know, and that, oh, I thought at first, okay, I can just be silent, but I wasn't so silent. Squirming around and spilling the tea and dropping grapes in the, in the teapot and, and sweating and, you know, fearing that my sweat smelled and, I, you know, it must be awful for these incredible beings, these giants of Dhamma, you know. So I couldn't wait to get out and leave it. I later learned that these gatherings are called delightful gatherings. <laughs> it didn't feel delightful to me. I'd run back, I'd have to change my robes and bathe, you know, and then finally get settled. And usually my first sitting, I'd be already be fearing the next day I'd be invited again, which I was. But interesting thing, you know, after a week of this, and I was there for at least two months or, or longer alone. So I knew I was going to keep getting invited. After a week or so, I, I began to change because I, I felt that their giant nature was made of peace and made of connection, metta, and made of this heart of, of care. You know, there was just, I could feel their energy of caring for me and that they probably clearly noticed my discomfort. <laughs> and, and yet their expressions, wordless expressions, I could feel. And I could feel them just residing in this, this joy, you know, this joy of being and, um, and equanimity peace of deep peace of being so I gradually just began to relax and, and feel at ease and feel like yeah I can be a young small sapling you know amongst these giants you know and it's guided my it's guided my practice ever since guided my practice that it's a metaphor of practice that the care and non-attachment can care and they, non-attachment meaning the equanimity, they didn't mind if, if I was this, you know, squirmy little white kid from Hawaii that didn't know what to do or how to behave, you know. Didn't bother them whatsoever. And on the other hand, I could, I could, their care was palpable, their metta was palpable. So I think of that delightful gathering as the basis and the, the, guiding, the guiding system for my practice and, you know, what we try to do for, for all of you to, to find that balance in, in yourselves of profound, co profoundly connecting and caring for yourself and others in the world and the peace of unconditional acceptance of equanimity that understands that we all meet our pleasure and pain, our joy and sorrow, our praise and blame, all conditions are by nature. And so it inspires us to cultivate these skillful states that have impact on our volitional, all our volitional thoughts and speech and physical activity. So I'll close with this, um, this student of ours who sat a long time ago with Michelle and I. He was a doctor who was really 
worn out. It was in the 80s and early 90s, and he had, he had been in the field with uh, HIV and AIDS. So he was, he was really raw, and tired, and, and worn. Um, and so he, he practiced with us, and we decided, Michelle and I decided, the Brahma Viharas and Metta would be really good for him. And it was. He couldn't begin with himself, just to give you that information. He wasn't able to start with himself, so he used the benefactor. Um, and he, he writes, you know, going deep inside, he wrote this to me later, and catching just a glimmer of the gold that has always been there. Tears again, sitting for several hours, deeply concentrated on the benefactor. I shift the flow of metta from dear friend to friend to neutral person to difficult person, shifting back to the benefactor with a surge of loving kindness. I see my own face with the clarity of a photograph. Take the place of the, his of his image. I had long ago stopped trying to send metta to myself, unable to generate any feeling of love. So I begin to say the phrases and suddenly this rush of loving kindness, orders of magnitude greater than anything I had experienced before, in waves washing over me, lasting for some minutes. It was the experience of finally receiving the metta myself, that uh, receiving metta myself that given me, gave me the source of loving kindness that had no limits. I began to see that everything that was happening was unfolding by its own nature. You know, so this is a bit of equanimity coming in. And I was just able to surrender to it. Um, and finally, yesterday, sitting with the joy of total connection, suddenly noticing the presence of myself as a small child and how it was to feel complete, uninhibited love for another. No baggage, no fear, no holding back. Sitting with the innocence of this child as he gazed in rapture at the benefactor, unconditional love pouring from his heart to be blessed with this experience again 45 years later. And suddenly, the realization that in spite of thinking all these years that I had killed that child in an effort to protect him, there he was saying over and over, I didn't die, I didn't die. Tears streaming down my cheeks. Everything in this is the same, but nothing will ever be the same again. sit for a moment with this chaitana in the heart. Intention. Intention for unconditional love. Caring, compassion. Attention for empathetic joy. And the intention for the deep peace and acceptance of things as they are. 